Second Peter's where we're back at today. I don't know if this is good news or bad news. We're not going to quite get through much more in a verse and a half again today. I promise it'll pick up. I shouldn't say that. Second Peter, the first chapter, we are again reminded of some amazing things. I want to very quickly try and summarize the last two sermons for those who haven't been here to set us in the right frame of reference, or to remind those who have been what we've talked about from two weeks ago. We discussed reading First Peter, I'm sorry, Second, the book of Second Peter, chapter 1, the first 15 or so verses, that we have a like precious faith obtained through Christ, and this is a great advantage for us. It's like, and I reminded us, and I want us to remember, that the same faith that Peter had is the same faith that we have today. Nothing has changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can romanticize and lift up those who are in the Scriptures, who we see accounts of doing amazing and wonderful feats of the work of God, who seemed uh, unbelievably close to the Lord, but we should remember that that exact same faith that they had is something that we can and should possess today. There should be no difference. That same like and precious, valuable faith is ours. We're reminded that God wants to multiply to us grace and peace. Not just add it, but to multiply it, to lavishly cover us with grace and peace. And we get that through our intimate and our deep, personable knowledge of God. One of the huge things, and I try not to uh, repeatedly compare uh, our faith with others because... I'm basically comparing the true thing with the false, but one thing that is distinguishingly different about our faith, the Christian faith, is that we believe in a God who wants to know us and does know us. God is not sitting off in some faraway place unconcerned with who we are. No, He knows us and wants us to know Him. He knows us so well, He knows how many hairs we have on our head. He knows us and He died to fulfill what we couldn't do, to pay a debt that we couldn't so that we can know Him. It's beautiful. It's amazing. When you stop and look at the beauty of the world or anything that goes on and realize that the God who made all of this is the God who loves me, it should stop us in our tracks. We realize how much He really does want to multiply grace and peace to us. We see that He has bestowed, given us everything we need for a good and godly life. Everything. Boy, is that a hard concept. Because we all want more of something or less of something, don't we? I think about almost anything we have in our life. If it's going well, we want more of it. If it's going bad, we want less. But He's given us everything that we need in order to follow after Him and to know Him. And because of that, we are uh, partakers of His divine nature. That means that, that if we know Him and the free pardon of sin, that we can become more like Him, and someday, ultimately, we get to become perfect like Him. And because of all of this, in light of all this, we are reminded that we are to be, uh, make haste or to be diligent. And then we're to add to, and we spent like 30 minutes last Sunday talking about what that little tiny word add to means. All these graces that we're getting ready to talk about. And just to catch you up, if you weren't here or don't remember... We talked about that word being add to, being a a very old term that talks about dancing or joining hands to dance or joining in some type of musical performance. And we tried, in my poor effort, to explain that what God, I think, is trying to tell us is not that the the graces we're getting ready to talk about, which is virtue and knowledge and temperance um, and godliness and brotherly love and love. It's not that these things are in order, as in, well, once I've accomplished virtue, then I can move on to knowledge. It is in fact that they are all united together. They are graces that God wants all of us to have in some form of almost dance that we have, where we look and see the rhythm and we think that's amazing. Where we go and we see a band perform and if we listen and we hear something out of tune or we're watching, I failed to mention last week, but I, I forgot about it, marching band. One person out of step ruins the whole line, doesn't it? 
And so it's the very same idea that we have here that in this life we are to, to grasp after and pursue all of these things with diligence, which means purpose, but also which means haste. It means we're not putting these off until later in life. We're not thinking, well, I'm going to have fun now and someday I'll get better at patience or love. Or I'm going to do this now and get better later. Or I'm going to focus only on this one thing. No, all of these things must come together and they must all increase as our pursuit of God using Him. Jesus Christ is the model for all these things. And then someday, as we saw in verse 11, we will all be entered into the kingdom of heaven. And that same word is used again. We will all for once be in perfect harmony loving God. It's a beautiful image. Whereby we are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Now, I want to pause here. We're going to talk about faith for just a minute because this is foundationally and, well, foundationally to everything that comes after this. I know I just got done saying that these aren't things that go in order temporarily. It's not like we should start here and then move on. It's not like we need to attain one of these to a certain degree of perfection, move on to the other. It's not even as though we're allowed to not be good at one of them. We have to be good at all of them. This is what becomes Christians. But we must begin with something. And to begin, God clearly points out in this passage, we begin with faith. Because if you do not have faith... You cannot do the rest of these. Let me say that again. If you do not have faith, you cannot do the rest of these. All of these come through faith. Notice you're adding to faith. You're multiplying. You're supplementing. You're joining in the dance together, faith, and then these other things. And so faith is something that is uh, almost presumed in the scripture that we have. Now, why uh, would the apostle Peter writing a letter assume that we all have faith? Because he's writing to who? To those who are saved. You see, that's what this is so importantly talking about. And I want to very clearly today tell those who do not have faith, who have never been saved, you must listen very closely to what I am about to tell you and what the scripture will reveal to you and what the spirit of God, if you will only but listen and seek him, will tell you about yourself. What is faith? Boy, have we spent, at different points, weeks on end looking at that one. But all of us have gone through Bible study sections, read things about it. There's entire books written about it. We can go back to Hebrews and look at that uh, example of faith. I don't really think it's quite a definition, but that's a different story. What is faith? Well, here's, let me just give you this one example. Abandoning all human reliance on self-efforts and placing total dependence upon God's character, His actions, his promises as revealed in his word. That's really hard to do. It is very, very hard to believe something we can't see, isn't it? It's very hard to believe something that will happen that we don't think really can because whatever the circumstances. Faith is a challenge, but the key to faith is abandoning, as it says here, all human reliance on self-efforts and placing our total dependence upon God's character, his actions, his promises as revealed in his word. So what does that mean when it comes down to saving faith that I am so intimately talking about today? What that means is at some point in your life, you have to truly believe that what the scripture says is true. That means at some point in your life, you have to come to a point when you realize I am not anything. I do things that God doesn't want me to do. I don't do the things that God wants me to do. And there is one way by which I can be cleansed from all of this. There's one way that I can be made right through him. And although to the world and even sometimes to us, it makes no sense whatsoever. I have to have faith that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he was sent to earth. 
that he walked perfectly without sin, that he was unjustly crucified, that he died, and that he was resurrected and ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of God. We must actually put our faith in that, not because I can prove it to you, not because I have seen it, not because I physically witnessed the crucifixion, but because I have faith in what God has revealed to me, that when he draws me through his spirit and says, come to me, and repent, that I will take some type of action and truly believe, truly have faith. Otherwise, we're just playing around the edges. And I can make this really easy, and I've heard pastors who I think are preaching heresy make this too easy. So all faith is just turning on the water because you know something's going to come out of the spigot. Okay. Faith is just getting on an elevator and push a button. Yeah, but what if the elevator isn't there? That's faith. What if you don't have a spigot and you just turn your hand and water comes out? That's faith. And that is hard. I won't deny any of that to anybody. It can be terribly hard. And you know, I think the main reason it's hard is because we get ourselves in the way of it. Because I want to do it. And you may never, ever have thought or even dared to say out loud, oh, I want to save myself. But how many times have some of us tried to do that over the years? Well, if I just pray this way, if I just do it, if I just wait till so-and-so's here to see me, or I just wait for this, or God, I expect it to happen this way. We have all these expectations. We have all these things that come into our lives so many times. And what it is we're doing is we're trying to make our own salvation come by our own hand. And it does not work that way because then it wouldn't be faith. So challenging to explain. Yet so simple. So hard to do, yet so simple. There's a huge difference between easy and simple, isn't there? Some things are very easy to do. Some things are very hard to do, even if it's simple. And so when I say you must believe, you must put faith, you must have this intimate knowledge like I'm talking about, more than just a mental, yeah, I believe in God. You must actually truly believe it. And if you've never believed it, then you are separated from God. And that is why it's implied in this passage, before we get into any of these other graces, that you simply have faith, a saving knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, that you've come to him because he's called you, that you have repented, and that you've truly asked for forgiveness, and that you have put your faith in him. And at that moment, when God forgives you, and everything else goes away. And you have a peace that you can't describe because you have finally put your faith in him. Let me read Ephesians 2 and 8. And nine. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is unmerited favor. God wants to save you. He sent his son to save you. From the foundations of the world, the plan was put into place to reunite a people that he knew would be disobedient to him, to him. So he is giving us grace to give us Jesus Christ. And it is by that grace we are saved, but it is through faith. But it's not a faith that we earn by deeds or by effort or by works. It is a faith that we come again believing that what the spirit inside of us is saying is true. Believing what the scripture says, believing what others have witnessed and testified, which is what we did a few minutes ago, is true about Jesus Christ and believing in him. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God and it's not of works, lest any man should boast. And so I ask a very serious question. Do you have faith? I mean, saving faith in Jesus Christ. 
If this was a discussion about having more faith or enhanced faith or trusting that God is going to do something for you, then it would be listed after this, right? And these graces, they build upon one another. This is fundamental to what we are talking about. Do you have grace? Have you been saved by grace through faith, not of your own effort, but of the gift of God, not of our works, so that none of us can boast? Do you have faith? Are you saved? Because the reality is, nothing else matters. Not a single thing in this world matters. Not your job. Not school. Not your family. We have a real problem with that in this country. We'll put family way ahead of God sometimes. But you know what comes first? Faith in Him. And all these things get added unto you. Have you been saved? Do you know God? Have you been, have you put your faith in Him for the first time? Remember that after we have done this, after we've been saved, we're told we should work diligently with purpose and an understanding of time. See, that time thing is actually critical for both ends of this. It's critical for the fact that we are saved because we do not know if we will have a chance tomorrow to believe in Him the first time. And once we do believe, we do not know how long we will have on this earth to do the things that He wants us to do. As I mentioned, I think last week, we can't just add time. Trust me, I've thought about it. It doesn't work. You can read books called Time Deepening, all this kind of stuff. You're not really adding anything. You're just trying to become more efficient. There is no more extra time. We have whatever time we are given. So faith is the animating principle. It is the better principle that all the rest of these things come from. And it must be developed and expanded and energized and exercised. All these things come through our faith. And we see this again in Ephesians. If I'll, I'll continue reading. In verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Follow with me. Grace, unmerited favor. We can, through faith, be reunited with him. Not of anything that I'm doing, but because of, because of faith. Then what are we supposed to do? Well, we're new creatures. Are we supposed to do the things that eventually... Later this Sunday, next Sunday, and a few Sundays. I'll get to the graces that we've talked about. This is where we say that because we are new creatures, God has encouraged us, commanded us, and told us to love others, to be patient, to have brotherly love, to gain and grow in knowledge, to be virtuous. All these things come after this bedrock principle of faith. We are made to do these things. So let me pause there. I don't want to get away too quickly or prolong too long on that question. Do you have faith in God and are you sure? Let me read verse 5 in a different translation. For this very reason, applying your diligence to the divine promises, make every effort in exercising and supplementing your faith to develop moral excellence and immoral excellence, knowledge. So remember, we are supposed to take all these things that Peter has told us that are true. We're supposed to take our faith and then we're supposed to, like a dance, like a musical, put all these things together to make what is beautiful, to make what is right, to make what is true. We're supposed to exhibit all of these graces. So as we think about virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly love and charity and kindness, I'm sorry, and love. Let me go back to the dancing metaphor or illustration, whichever one it is. I want you to think about those, that list that it's gave you, and I want you to try and answer the question, which of those do you do like really well? Which of those do you excel at? Which of those, if we're thinking about dancing, would you say, I, I do this really well? 
Which of these would you say you trip over God's feet when you try and move together in unity? Is it patience? Is it godliness? Is it love? Brotherly kindness? Do you struggle in one of these areas over the other? Because again, it's not like, well, I got three out of four, so that's, you know, that's okay. Or I've got three, I'll work on four and five and six later. No, it's all of them together at the same time. Performing beautifully, representing who God is. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And I'm going to jump down back into Second Peter and read verse 8 and 9, and we'll cover this and more depth later. But remember, it says, For these things, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall never be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. It's very clear. If we are not growing in these graces, if we are not in these graces... And these aren't gifts, by the way. These are things we exercise and bring forth. We cultivate. We work to make these things more like Christ. If we're not doing this, the Scripture says you're blind. You can't see very far off. You can see it's in front of your face, but you can't see afar. It's a serious problem. So let me go on. We'll get through one more word today. Because it's the word that brought me to this whole passage to begin with. I told you a few weeks ago I was, could not let go of the concept of virtue. Struggled with that for weeks. And it would go away and it would come back. So it says to us, besides all these, giving diligence, add to your faith. What are we adding to the faith that we already have in Jesus Christ? Or what are we adding? Virtue. Virtue. You can go online and Google words and... Uh, there's a special, or not special, there's a place you can go and see like how often it's used over time. They'll tell you if it's going up, in, up or down. It bases that on books, not on you know, websites or anything, but it's very interesting to look at. And uh, the, the usage of virtue has like basically been like you know, declining rapidly since about you know, like 1850 or something. This idea, this, this thing we call virtue is really going away in our English language society that we have as far as publication and books and other materials. And so we might think we kind of know what virtue is, but I want to make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Because again, this is vital. It's very easy to read this list and go, yep, got it, good, let's go to lunch. It's entirely something different to dedicate your time to understanding what the Spirit of God is telling you through these scriptures. And it's worthy of slowing down. Virtue. This specific word appears only three other times in the scripture. Philippians 4.8, it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be any excellence, excellence is that same word, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so we are told, commanded, that we are to be thinking about certain things. That includes things that are virtuous. So it really behooves us to know what virtue is, doesn't it? Can't think about it if we don't know what it is. The other place is in 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, there's the same word, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, when we think about virtue, not only is it something we should understand and we should think about, but we should think about it in context of what? The one who is virtuous, the only one who is excellent and above all, and that is Jesus Christ. And he has called us to be his own possession. Again, going back to this intimate, clear knowledge that God desires to have us. And we are to proclaim the virtues of him who called us out of darkness. And so if you want to know what virtue is and how we should be virtuous, think about who and what Christ is. Think about his love. 
Think about his actions. Think about his words and his deeds. Think about the one who God sent to model the perfect way and how we should behave. And if it's something that Christ did, it's something that we should do. If it's something he didn't do, it's something we should probably stay away from. And we can get an idea of what it means to be a virtuous person by looking at the excellencies or the virtues of Jesus Christ. And then the other time is earlier in this chapter in verse 3. According as his, as his divine power giveth unto all things that pertaineth unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that has called us to his glory and virtue. Again, going back to this idea that we look unto who? Unto Jesus Christ who has virtue. You say, well, you've still not defined it. Good point. Let me try two different definitions. Virtue, that which is recognized by all men as excellent. That word men there being not gender specific, as it was written a long time ago, is saying that whatever we all think is excellent is virtuous. That's fairly close. I like that. It makes sense. Another definition by Noah Webster. Virtue, moral goodness, the practice of moral duties, the abstaining from vice, or a conformity of life and conversation to the moral law. See, Noah Webster, being a very serious Christian man, understood virtue and understood what it was and what it wasn't. Sometimes virtue is doing something that we're supposed to. Sometimes virtue is not doing the thing we're not supposed to. And then wisdom's in between that tells us. Wisdom's in between that. Virtue makes us active, makes us consider what we're doing so that we can decide whether what we're doing should be done or should be avoided. And we consider all of this for the sake of what God has told us and he demands and wants us to do. One of the keys I want you to come away with is virtue implies some type of action or you are specifically not acting. But what it isn't is passive. Does that make sense? It can be virtuous to avoid a sin by not partaking in it, by not doing that. Are you with me? But it's also virtuous to do something that God told you to do. What virtue is not is sitting passively on the couch. Virtue is not mindlessly scrolling through your phone. Virtue is action doing what you should do or action by abstaining from things you should be abstaining from. Virtue is not passive. To have virtue, you must act or refrain from acting. But we have a really serious problem in our society, which is what I've been pondering on for a long time. I'll try to make this part very quickly because I could get a little carried away. Society has perverted what virtue is. It's twisted. It's changed. It's trying to sell us the opposite of what it actually is. Two ways it's doing that. One is it's telling us that there's really no action required to be virtuous. You don't really have to do anything. Consider a couple of examples. You can be virtuous in our society if you update the profile picture on your social media to support whatever thing is currently supposed to be supported. And you are virtuous. Because you are doing what everyone else is doing. There's no action required. There's no virtue in that. You can be virtuous if you get a yard sign or a bumper sticker. You can be virtuous if you post a certain meme, again, to whatever social media. Saw a lot of the most peculiar things, and here I'm speaking in broad brushes because I don't necessarily know a lot of people who go out and do a lot of protesting or rioting, but... It struck me as many people, especially in 2020, as we watched a lot of things that went on, they would go out and they would demand change and then walk away without actually doing anything to help that community change. That's not virtue. You understand what I'm saying? Virtue requires action of some type that is good and moral. And there may be times when we should stand and say, no, this is wrong. But you know what we should do after we stand and say it is wrong? We should do something to fix it. And all too often in our societies, people go out and they make a verbal stand or they change their profile picture or something, but then they never actually do anything to make it better. 
And this is where I think society has twisted it. We were told during COVID that staying home and doing nothing was virtuous. Look at where we're at with that. At a bare minimum, I'm sorry to disappoint parents, teachers, you already know this. Uh, They're saying that across the board, 10 to 15% decline in learning during that time. The increase in alcoholism and suicide, spouse abuse, off the charts. But we were being virtuous to do nothing. I wasn't going to stand for it. So we modified slightly and had Zoom church for a few months. We even had Zoom Sunday school. We'd sing on Zoom. We'd have little parties. Because I was terrified that we would become stagnant and doing nothing somehow think that we're doing something. That was wrong. There's things that we should be doing. So if we're going to be virtuous, we have to actually do something. The other way that society has twisted the idea of virtue is we are picking the wrong things and celebrating them as virtues. You are virtuous if you promote, allow, or encourage, or even celebrate a man to dress up in the most unusual mockery way of a woman and read a book to a child in a library. That's virtue. Please. You're virtuous if you're a man and want to compete in women's sports. Okay. You don't see that going the other way, do we? wonder why. We're virtuous if we support a war. Oh, I know. Be careful. We could sell this one a lot. But let us not remember. Let's not forget. Let us not forget that right now, as I stand here, there are probably hundreds of people on both sides of this war and hundreds more who are completely innocent dying every single day because of it. So before we think we've picked the virtuous side, let's be very careful. I don't care which side is virtuous. The virtuous thing to do would be to stop. We somehow think that having no free speech is virtuous. This one's going to get us really quick. Really quick. Canada's going down this route. Uh, You wouldn't even believe what's going on in um, Ireland. To the point that almost, even though I was there a year ago and loved it, would love to go back. I, I don't know. They're at the point now, if they find something that they deem as inoffensive speech on your phone, you have to prove that you weren't going to redistribute it to somebody else. And if you can't actively prove that you weren't going to do something, just real quick, this stands jurisprudence for thousands of years on its head, right? We had this innocent until proven guilty. The law is so strong that you have to prove that you're innocent. Listen. I think it's the exact opposite. Virtue is being able to listen to what someone says that's entirely offensive. We see this over and over and over again, and it's posted everywhere, and we've lost the very concept of what it means to be virtuous. One more, just so I can just make sure I get all my ducks in a row. Everybody can get all mad at me. Well, actually, two more. Take that back. I'm just going to hit them real hard, okay? Um, Pride parades. It's not a virtue to march up and down the street and tell me who you like to sleep with. I'm sorry. And it's not virtuous for a parent to physically mutilate their children and celebrate them changing genders. It's a complete lie. It's the exact opposite of virtue. And it is a classic example of what I'm getting ready to read in Romans, just to remind us one more time, that what has happened is Satan has come in among us and told us that everything is right and is good is wrong and is evil, and everything that is evil and horrible is right and good. And our society has taken it full line and sinker, and we are supporting as virtues the most horrible, ungodly, imaginable things.
Romans 1. You can turn there if you want to. I'm just going to read it. Romans 1, beginning with verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. There it is again. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now let's compare that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest, is clear in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in the Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to their uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart to dishonor themselves, their own bodies between them, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this cause did God give them up unto their vile affections, for even their women did not, even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that which recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to reprobate minds to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliceness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiting, haters of God, um, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventing of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, uh, covenant breakers, without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they wish to commit such things are worthy of death, not only to the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That's a long list. And what we are being told is that God will give us over to a mind that not only doesn't understand virtue and morals, but we will get it flipped right side up and we will get totally confused. And we will begin to praise and even, I will dare say, worship the things that God finds despicable and call them virtue when in fact they are not. Let me finish the definition from Webster, because I didn't finish it. He says, virtue is nothing but voluntary obedience to the truth. It's not virtuous if you make me do something. I have a choice. It's virtuous if I do something and I have an option to. It's virtuous if I'm free to make a decision and I choose the truth. And you know what? We're getting to the point that it's not society's fault almost anymore because we've been messed up for so long. People don't even hardly know the truth anymore. Where does that leave us? I know the truth. You know the truth. That means we must stand for virtue and for truth and for morality to a lost and dying world because that is our duty, that is our job, that is what we have been told to do. And in addition to our faith, we're supposed to be what? More virtuous. That means we need to think about the things that Christ did and try to do them every single day and to do them well, to do things that are excellent, to do things that are moral, to do the things that we should do. Again, not to be passive, but to be active, doing things and refraining from doing things and knowing what the truth is so that we know what we are supposed to do. The world tells you to do nothing. 
And when it does tell you to do something, it tells you to do the very opposite of what actually is virtue because they do not know the truth. Now, here's the good news. Most people deep down inside haven't made it to the end of Romans chapter 1 yet. What do I mean by that? I don't think it's any coincidence that a small group of Christians with a, I mean, it's a little bit better than a homemade fear, but, you know, not, not Hollywood, can make a movie about human trafficking that will beat the biggest box office of the day in sales in the same week. Because somehow people deep down inside know that doing horrible things to a child is wrong. You with me? And you can deny it all you want to, and you can celebrate it all you want to, and you can call it things by different names. Minor attracted persons is what the, the current name is instead of pedophile. All right? You can say all you want to, but the reality is people know that is wrong. And so here's my point. I've been saying this for years. We're not headed in a good path in our society. But the very last thing that we should do as believers in Jesus Christ is to step off the rock that is Jesus Christ, the foundation of what is true and moral, to try and reach those people. Because at some point when they realize they're standing on quicksand, at some point when they realize that what they've argued is that there is no difference between men and women, means there is no such thing as truth, which means up is down and down is up, when they realize that they can't do math anymore because they say that's a racist, horrible thing to do, when people come to their realization that everything that they've been taught is a lie, we must be standing firmly, unmoved, on the truth that we can stick our hand out and say, come back to us. If we try and move the church to meet them, we'll, we'll get virtue mixed up too. If we try and say, well, I accept you for who you are. Oh, geez. Did Jesus Christ accept anybody for who they were? Think about that for just a minute. Not once. What do you tell people? Don't sin anymore. Go get back your money. Don't do wrong. Make amends. If you can meet Jesus Christ and leave unchanged, you didn't meet him. And yet, what's the mantra of today? Well, just accept me for who I am. The point of all this is virtue is vital to who we are as Christians. It is a characteristic that should reflect us that we are moral people, that we strive, although not perfectly, I should go without saying, although not perfectly, we strive to do the right, moral, virtuous thing, and we are ready and waiting for when someone comes and wants to know why we are the way that we are. To tell them the truth, to tell them the answer. And you know what that's going to require of us? To stand for something. That means when someone comes to you at work or a friend and says, Oh, it's so great, my son or daughter is transitioning. That you look at them with the same contempt as if someone comes to you and says, Oh, guess what? My neighbor's going to human traffic my daughter. And you go, Literally, for the love of God, no. Because that's how important this is. There are so many things in our society, so many things, and it's just easy to go, oh, that's nice. Good for you. I'm happy for you. That sounds interesting. Or we just don't say anything at all, and we're passive. See, being passive in light of these and other circumstances is not virtue. You see how I said that first part? We must be active. We must be forward in what we know is right. And we must not sit around and go, well, you know, I mean, I'm not really sure what Romans 1 means. Maybe we can interpret it a different way. Yeah, I don't think so. It's pretty clear. That huge list of things is not of God. We shouldn't celebrate them. We sure should not say that they are virtuous. We must be virtuous. We must stand. We must act on behalf of the truth. And we must maintain a moral compass because when the world realizes it's been building its entire society in quicksand, it's going to come where? Back to Jesus Christ, which is the only foundation. And we must be ready and we must be strong enough to say, yes, come, let me teach you. Let me show you the way of God. Let the Spirit reveal himself to you in our presence. Let us help you 
because you've been drowning and had no idea. And we must not celebrate the behaviors of the world. So here's my conclusion. Believers, those who have the faith that we talked about at the beginning, are you acting out virtues? Because there's two options. One is you're not. You're not living the faith you should be. Or the other, which I think is kind of worse. Paul had a different term for it. He called it being lukewarm. But I'm going to call it Christian virtue signaling. Got a bumper sticker that says you're a believer? Great if you're genuine. You just lightly tell people, oh, I go to church sometimes. I don't want to make you feel bad. I'm not going to tell you much about it. Are you virtue signaling as in fake to the world that you're a believer? Or are you truly living into the virtues that Jesus Christ modeled for us? Because let me tell you, we have to live into those virtues. Believers, are we caught up in celebrating, condoning, or just sitting passively for immoral behavior? We don't need to just be silent. We can't be silent. I have to tell people the truth. Like their life depends on it, because you know what? It does. Now, let me go back to the first group that I talked about at the beginning. And I want to draw a distinction that's very important. Those who've never known Jesus Christ in the sense that I talked about earlier, those who've never put their faith in him, understand there is a very significant difference between faith and virtue. You can look virtuous and be without faith. Do not confuse those things. Do not for a minute think, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I go to work, pay my taxes. I don't agree with all this other stuff that you just talked about, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a pretty good person. I do these things. I'm nice to people. I went to school. I have knowledge. I'm fairly patient, pretty godly. I love people. That is not faith. That is not faith. That is works. So understand what I'm telling you today Don't assume that because you have some of these things or all these things or you're okay at them, that somehow you have faith. Faith is separate from virtue. We can appear virtuous without having faith. Really can. And remember, Romans 2.14, even the Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. So you can never know what's right or wrong and still do what's right. Just instinctively, because there's, again, there's a part of God that's in us. Nature tells us. All these things tell us that we should and shouldn't do these things. And if we're listening to nature, we're listening to God, and we're not perverted by society telling us what is up is down, then we tend to kind of follow after a group of things that makes us almost seem virtuous without ever actually putting our faith in Jesus Christ. But only by our faith in His virtue... Can we be virtuous and pure? Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whomever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let me read that again. I want you to listen very closely. Without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Some of you who are here today, and this has been bothering me for a little bit. Some of you who are here today know that you've not been saved. Know that you don't believe the way that I've described it. Some of you know this. We might call that lost because you know it and you know that you're lost. Here is what I want you to understand. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And whoever would draw near to him, if you want to be near to God, and I don't know what else to tell you other than you should want to be near to God, because the alternative, the alternative is quite literally hell. 
Two options. If you want to draw close to God, then you must put your faith in Him and you must believe that He will reward you if you seek after Him. What does that look like? That means you need to ask Him, you need to beg Him to help you. You need to ask Him and beg Him for forgiveness for having spent your entire life sinning against Him and to put your faith in Him and ask Him to come into you and make you a new creature. You have to replace, as the scripture says, this heart that is stony and rocky. It does not want to feel God with a heart that listens and hears what God has to tell you. And you must seek that and pursue it. You must chase it. You must seek it. You must spend your waking moments and your last thought before you lay your head down at night seeking after the thing that only God can give you. How long do you do that? Until you get it. Some people it takes very little time. Some people it takes longer. But you have to seek it. You have to seek it. You have to believe in faith. You have to draw near to him. You have to listen to him calling. And the most tragic thing that could ever happen, yes, more tragic than anything that I mentioned today, Listen to me. Listen to me. You know what's more tragic than a human child being sexually abused and trafficked? Not having faith in God. That's worse. That's worse. Can you believe it? That's worse. It is the worst thing that could possibly happen because it is the only thing that lasts forever. And so as we come to a conclusion, I want you to very seriously consider, do you have faith in God? Have you pleased him? Have you sought him? If you need to seek him again, then try again. Brothers and sisters, in a world that is losing its ever-living mind, it's the only thing that solves all of it is knowing him. And I beg you, on behalf of the Lord, that he would burden you with a desire to know him, to have your faith in him, and to pursue him. And I pray that you would do that, and you would do it now. Because as I pointed out earlier, we don't know how long we have. We don't know how much time we have. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. And so as we have a hymn, I ask that you would really seriously consider, do you have faith in him? And use this as an opportunity to seek him.